Hi, I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And this is our True Crime Podcast. Evil Pudding. We are a husband and wife duo. I'm ex-military and law enforcement. And I'm a true crime professional fanatic. And we will, together <laughs> will cover the most depraved and most shocking offenders and events that you probably have ever heard of. That's right. Only the most evil are covered here. So join us once a week. As we serve up some evil pudding. Hello, crime family. Welcome to episode 57. Hi, guys. This is the week after Valentine's Day, so we hope that you either ignored it sufficiently or Mm -hmm. that you had a happy one, because I tend to ignore it sufficiently. We're going to be each other's Valentines. That's right. I am Beth. And I'm Bailey. And today, Bailey's bad and I'm good. And I love saying that because it makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel really bad about myself, so... (laughs) Especially because you told me that this is a brutal story that you're about to tell me. Yeah, this one is going to involve children, so everybody buckle up. Yikes. Yeah. Okay, well, we don't do it very often, but when we do, there's a reason for it, so... I'm going to tell you about a man named Gregory Green, who was from Detroit, Michigan... In his early 20s, Gregory Green married Tanya Clayton Green and lived with her in their home in Detroit. They would often get into screaming matches, and it was said in a lot of articles that police had been called to their house for domestic violence multiple times, but Tanya ended up telling them, it's fine, we worked it out. And so they never actually arrested him at any point. It's tragic how often that happens. Yeah, and it, they once they wind down, it's all, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. But it probably was. You're just trying to comfort yourself. You're just used to it. Yeah, exactly. You're like, it, he's never killed me before, so it's fine. Yeah. On July 14th, 1991, Tanya got home from work when another violent episode of Gregory's began, and he started harassing her verbally and physically. And at this point, she told him, you know what, I'm going to pack up my stuff. I'm going to leave for good this time. I'm not doing this anymore. Was it just the two of them at this point? At this point it was, except Tanya at this point was six months pregnant. So once he started roughing her up, she said, this this is the last straw. I'm leaving. Right, because I'm not going to have a baby if you keep roughing me up Mm -hmm. while I'm pregnant. If you were roughing me up while I'm pregnant, you do not give a shit. That's That's right. Very obvious to her. And you have no control over yourself. Mm -hmm. That day, July 14th, 1991, she starts packing up her stuff and tells him she's going to leave. That same night, Gregory ended up calling 911, being very vague with the dispatcher, just saying, I need police here. Then he basically just went outside and waited for them to arrive. Okay. When they did, Gregory led them to his pregnant wife, Tanya, who had been stabbed ten times. Jesus Christ. It said in the abdomen and head region with a steak knife. And then he also led them to the murder weapon, which he had placed in the fridge for them. I don't know what the reasoning was. Maybe he wanted to preserve the evidence. Because it seems like he wasn't denying he did it. He was just... Okay. Yeah, here's the weapon. Um... Yeah. I don't know what to think about this right now, except that... Don't stab people. Yeah. At this point, Tanya was still alive when the police arrived. And they took her to the hospital. However, later that evening, she died from her injuries. And therefore, so did their unborn baby. Gregory was arrested. And he attempted to plead the insanity defense... They had the psychological evaluation done, and they deemed that he was competent to stand trial. And they had 50 other times that she had called the police on him, and then just failed to press charges, so they knew that this was a a habitual thing. You didn't just snap. Yeah, this was not a one-time, oops, I went crazy. 
So once they denied the insanity defense, he ended up pleading no contest to second-degree murder and received 15 to 25 years in prison for that. 15 to 25? Yes. Okay. Throughout his time in prison, Gregory kept in touch with a friend of his from before he murdered his wife, who was named Pastor Fred Harris. He had gone to that pastor's church since he was a little kid, basically, and so they'd known each other a long, long time. So the pastor was much older than him? Yes. Okay. Pastor Harris and Gregory's family members all sent letters periodically into the parole board attempting to offer him a chance to start over after learning his lesson, mostly telling the judge that he would have a huge amount of support, they would give him a place to stay, they'd keep their eye on him, and make sure he was regularly getting counseling and stuff like that if they were to release him. I'm feeling bad about this because if they wanted to be that supportive, why didn't they support him before he murdered Where Tanya. was the support for Tanya? Right, All but that. I mean, if they wanted to help him be a different person, mm-hmm. they could have helped him in the many times before he killed her. And they had to have known that was happening. Yeah. They were really rooting for him and putting in a good word with the board to try and further that along a little bit. And saying, we know he can't do this alone, but we're, we'll be there to help him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And there was a letter written from Pastor Harris in 2005 saying, Gregory and I were friends before his mishap and he was incarcerated. Mishap might yeah. be a little bit of a diminishment. Mm-hmm. He was a member of our church. I feel he has paid for his unfortunate lack of self-control and the damage he has caused as much as possible and is sorry. That's what he wrote to the parole board. Gregory Green continued to try to get out on parole but was denied twice in 2004 and twice again in 2006. The reasoning from the judge being that he has showed absolutely no remorse his entire time in prison. And this is over a decade, like 15 years at this point. Yeah, I think Pastor Harris should try to remember that not everyone can Can be be saved. saved. Exactly. So, in 2008, though, Green's friends and family were finally successful in their attempts, and Gregory was released from prison with two years of parole additionally after that. Ugh. On top of that, he eventually landed a job at the Detroit Metro Airport. This was after 9-11. How the fuck does a convicted felon... That's a really good question. What was he doing at the airport? I couldn't find out what his job was, but even if he's just the ticket guy, you know? Or someone who goes around emptying the trash cans. I mean, I would think that anybody who works in a secure part of the airport would have to be able to pass... TSA security checks and a background check. Because you have a certain amount of clearance that you're allowed after you get a job there. Absolutely. And you have anonymity, basically, because you have on a uniform, so you can go places that other people can't just go. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I just thought that was really fucking bizarre. That seems like super bad judgment on somebody's part. Yep. And then his parole ended in 2010. December 18th, 2010, Gregory remarried. This time, he tied the knot with Faith Harris... The daughter of his good friend, Pastor Fred Harris. Oh, boy. Faith, run away. Yeah. Run away. They moved into an apartment in Dearborn Heights, Michigan, together, along with Faith's children from a previous marriage, Chadney and Kara, who were 13 and 11 at the time that the two married. The couple eventually ended up extending their family even further, having two more daughters a few years later named Coy and Kaylee. Do we have any knowledge at this point whether he was abusing her the way he was abusing Tanya? Mm-hmm. Yes. So he, we do have It started that. pretty quickly after they got oh, married. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. The relationship was rough from the start. Faith ended up filing for divorce in 2013, only three years after they married, but for some reason did not follow through with that. Because she was terrified of him. And because women, the most dangerous time for them is when they leave their 
partner. And that's a quote she's given before of that she went into this when she first filed for divorce thinking, yeah, I need to prepare for this as in saving up money so I can get a place. I didn't realize I need to prepare for this as in protect myself and everybody involved. I didn't realize that was even going to be such a hassle as it was. Right. Well, that's what happened to Tanya. Yeah, you get trapped in it, really. Well, it's... I mean, she died because she was trying to leave him. Mm. So, I'm sorry I keep interrupting. No, I'm okay. so, I'm really invested in this story. I know. Story. It's, you could see it coming, you know? You feel it coming. You can. You know that this guy is... And you don't know is, what, but You it's know just... this guy is a time bomb. Again, in August of 2016, she filed for divorce. Earlier in the year, 2016, she had also filed for a personal protection order but a judge came back and said she had no reason for that and what denied the it. Hell? She's living with a convicted murderer. And the judge later went on to say that judge actually ended up being disbarred. I should hope so. Later that year. They ended up stating Gregory Green's past was not disclosed when the PPO was filed, and that is the responsibility of the individual seeking a PPO to provide the evidence. So it's not the responsibility of the judge to maybe just do a very quick background check? I mean, how many clerks do they have? Couldn't they say, okay, let's see if there's any... Did I mean, I would think when you file a request for a personal protection order, I would think that when you file it, mm-hmm. there would be some place on there that would say, is there some reason that you're afraid of this person Mm -hmm. and at that point would you not write into that saying we have had abuse issues in the past and he was convicted of murdering his previous wife i mean i would think they would have to be somewhere on that form yeah i don't know i i'm obviously haven't seen the form so i don't know what she did disclose and what she didn't but i just think that's very fucked up to blame yeah, to say you didn't tell us all well, of his court history. And poor Faith is like, I'm sorry, I didn't go to law school. Isn't that your job to do your due diligence in this case? I and thought you guys would know this because he's already been in, he's had a criminal history that is very clear. Yeah. Faith, when she's talked about her experience with Gregory, she has said that when she went to file the PPO, she did mention that he had violent mood swings and often acted erratically. And an example she gave was when they had had their first daughter, the baby had been asleep on the couch and he would just kick the couch so hard it would go flying across the room while the baby was sleeping on it. Oh my God. And so that's when Faye started to realize, I'm not safe with this person. He doesn't care about a newborn child. Even if you think you're safe, That child is obviously not. Yeah, it's now your responsibility to protect this thing that cannot protect itself. And she tried. And she did, yes. And they did not support her in the court system. Yeah. We've seen that before, haven't we? Mm Mm-hmm. On September 21st, 2016, this was one month after she filed for divorce, another 911 call came from Gregory Green at 1.15 a.m. I don't like... This. I don't like this. He once again calmly waited in the driveway for the authorities to arrive, and then once they did, he told them that he had shot his family and they could be found inside the home. The police did walk into a very grim scene. The two younger children, Coy and Callie, now five and four. Mm. These are these are his biological children. Right, okay. His children, his biological children, Coy and Callie, now five and four, were both found upstairs with no obvious injuries, but deceased in their beds. And then the police inspected the home further and found the remaining family members in the basement. Both Chadney and Kara, his stepchildren, who were 19 and 17, had been shot multiple times in the head and were deceased. Faith Harris Green, also in the basement, was still alive. Which is not... 
probably <laughs> what she wants at this point. What she went through is probably worse than death. She had been zip-tied and duct-taped in place, unable to stop the events that had unfolded around her. So she was alive watching while he killed her children? Forced to watch as he shot both of her children oh right in the, in the head in front oh of her. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. He had shot her in the foot and then had taken a box cutter to her face, but it seemed like he purposefully kept her alive, specifically to torture her and make her go through this. Obviously, Gregory Green was arrested at the scene. He immediately confessed to the crime, but provided no insight as to motive, but I don't really think we needed it. We know it. Once again, a psychological evaluation was performed, but he was deemed competent to stand trial again. And in his confession, he explained how he had left his two young daughters in the running car in the garage and placed a duct tape tube on the muffler, leading it inside the vehicle, and then just slowly waited for them to asphyxiate. Oh, I see. So he didn't want his children to suffer, but he... Mm-hmm. Didn't give a shit about the two kids. I mean, of course, they're they're dead, but he didn't torture them to death. But his wife tortured her, made her watch her other two children die, and they died a terrible death. Yeah. I'm mad at my wife, and you're part of her, so therefore you're going to suffer for what what I think she did to me. And at the end of the day, he knew that would be worse than death to her is... Yeah. And so he's torturing Faith. Yeah. Horrifying. I mean, that's a cruelty that... Most people can't It's even. not comprehensive. You can't. Yeah, you can't even wrap your head around the cruelty of that. Police completely confirmed all of his confession because they found the duct tape still on the muffler and all. obviously they found the gun in the house, which I don't know how he even got a gun again. He's a felon. But he was sentenced to 47 to 102 years in prison for this after a plea deal which was agreed upon by Faith and the father of her two oldest children. They didn't want to go through the trial over and over and over fighting it, so... Since that tragic day back in 2016, Faith has spent her time volunteering at a women's shelter in Detroit, Michigan, and speaking out about her experience as a way to heal. She also wrote a book called The Monster That Killed His Family Twice, The Faith Green Story. And there is an episode of the TV show Evil Lives Here where she's featured in it. It's heartbreaking. There are excerpts from her daughter's diary, Kara, the 17-year-old, where she realized in hindsight, the kids saw everything. They knew everything. They didn't like him. Well, a narcissist like that can fool a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But when you're honing in as a narcissist, you're honing in on the person that you're trying to pull the biggest con on, you don't have enough bandwidth to put that charm out on everyone equally. And some people are going to see through it. Unfortunately, the person who is the most vulnerable in bringing this person into their life they don't see why you don't like that person they don't Mm -hmm. get well yeah he's got the mask on 24 7 when faith is concerned but when she leaves the room or goes to work and then kara is left and you know when you're only 11 when that guy first comes into your life as your stepfather you don't feel like you have the place to be like don't do this mom you're rationally gonna think well, mom knows what she's doing. Like, yeah, it's my mom. She knows. She's the one who runs things. Yeah. But. Oh, my God. What just a, really sad. And it just. That's a heartbreaking story. It, and it's so predictable. Mm-hmm. It really it just sparks the conversation, though. Where is the line of people that can be reformed? You know? I am all for prison reform. But I just don't know where you draw the line, I guess. 
I guess maybe for me it would be where the judge said he doesn't have any regret, no remorse whatsoever, doesn't realize what he's done to his wife is wrong. Or he might think it's wrong, but she deserved it. Mm -hmm. Or she brought this on herself is what he tells himself. The judge, when he denied the parole multiple times, he said that the reason he didn't feel that he showed any remorse was because he said, yeah, this is wrong, but she pissed me off that night. And I retaliated by stabbing her. And the judge is like, okay, the problem is you're not seeing that stabbing her is not an appropriate response to her making you angry. Exactly. (laughs) You know what? People are going to make you angry in your life and you just have to move on. Put on your big boy pants. You can yell at her. You can (laughs) yell if you want. But you have to let her leave safely. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh my God, this is horrible. No wonder you told me to whiskey drink while we did this. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine the horror that her family feels at having been part of the mechanism that got him out of prison. Because none of them saw what he really was. They thought he was a good guy who did this one bad thing. No, he was a bad person who fooled you for a really long time. yeah, I saw a lot of people in the comment sections blaming the family and being like, well, what do you think about that now? And it's like, don't do that. Let's no. not do that because they are just as much a victim of him putting on a mask. It could happen to anybody. Well, ironically, and not ironically, but coincidentally, my story is also about a guy who completely fooled somebody for 20 years. It happens a lot more than you think. We all get fooled by people. Yeah. And I, I can't help but put myself in the place of faith. Yeah. So, shall we move on to a survivor story to get us out of this funk? Yes, make us feel slightly better. All right, slightly better. Slightly better is probably as... That's the goal. (laughs) This woman is a woman that I not just respect her, but she is an amazing artist. And you know how I feel about artists. Yes, I do. I had seen this story on I Survived a long time ago, maybe a year ago, but I had forgotten about the story. But this is about Lonnie Feather, and she was born around 1965. I don't have any of those little details because, you know, living people don't always want to give that away. But she grew up in Oregon. Her father had died the year before this story happens. Mm -hmm. And so she was at a place at the time the story happened that put her a little bit vulnerable and a little bit looking for something in her family, in her life, in her her heart. Mm -hmm. So let me go back to the beginning. And then that will all make more sense. Lonnie was born in 1965, grew up in Oregon, and very dear to my heart, as I mentioned, Lonnie is an amazing artist. She has publicly exhibited her artwork since 1982, which was five years before she received her bachelor's with honors from Portland State University in 1987. She worked up and down the West Coast doing additional coursework and experimental workshops. She had several specialties, but in particular, she really enjoyed glasswork. So molten glass, sand cast glass, stained glass, all of that stuff. If you look at her website, you'll see the amazing variety of beautiful glass work she's done. I can get on board with that. It's gorgeous. Yeah. In fact, she was recognized with the 1983 prestigious Corning Award. And, you know, Corning deals with Corning Ware, which is tempered glass cookware. Okay. And they do other things like glass block, and they also do spun glass insulation and things like that. So they're a glass-related company, and therefore they have an award for the outstanding student at the Pilchuck Glass School. Lonnie was also selected as the outstanding artist in multiple awards presented over the years. Throughout her career, 
She's created public and private commissions and has been celebrated with shows and awards and honors in juried exhibitions. She paints, she draws, and she especially works with various forms of glass and mixed media. Mm -hmm. And mixed media is when you have, you've got a drawing and then you've got maybe a collage where you've glued things on a piece of masonite or something. And then you've got one of her glass works and they're all of the same theme. So they work together. Okay. I gotcha. I spent some time looking at her art website, which is LonnieFeather.com, and her work is just beautiful. I keep repeating that, but I'm just, I love art. Do you care if I just look it up real fast? No, go ahead. I'm trying, I'm like dying to picture what she does. Oh, I see what you mean by, uh, was it multimedia? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Mixed media. Mixed mixed media. media. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I love this one. That's cute. I love that one, too. Oh, wow, these are gorgeous. So, Lonnie has vision, she has talent, and she has skills. Mm Mm-hmm. In the early 1980s, as part of her glass art studies and practice, she had also created a stained glass business. Mm -hmm. And stained glass can be just, can be modern, it can be traditional, it can just be crazy beautiful. Lonnie had purchased from a supplier of glass, and his name was Michael Hunter, and they had become friends Mm -hmm. over the time of their business dealings. They knew one another for several years, but over time, he ended up leaving the state. Lonnie became really busy and successful in her art career. And the two just fell out of touch over time. Mm -hmm. So over the next two decades, Lonnie was killing it on the West Coast art world. She had bought a home of her own in Southeast Portland, Oregon. She was single. She had some loneliness, but she was doing well. She was busy. She was becoming really known. She was selling a lot of art, and she had a steady stream of commissions, both public and private. And then in 2001, Michael Hunter, the glass salesman, decided to look up Lonnie and call her after all these years just to see how she was doing. Mm -hmm. They started to get back in touch. He was flirty. He made it clear he was interested in her. He was charming. He was confident. Seemed successful. He was very sure of himself. She was flattered. She was enjoying the attention. Mm -hmm. He had traveled around over the years and he was now living in New Orleans in a motorhome. And over a period of time, the two had shared a bunch of phone calls and Lonnie was starting to take a liking to Michael. After this initial phase of talking on the phone, Lonnie decided she was going to take a chance. She asked if he would like to drive up to Portland and park his motorhome at her house, and that way they could actually spend time together and really see how they got along in person as more than friends. Okay. So around the end of January or the beginning of February 2001, Michael finally just showed up in Portland and parked his motorhome in Lonnie's driveway. The two began sort of seeing each other, sort of flirting around, sort of becoming a couple, dating, Mm -hmm. and soon they had become a couple. Mm -hmm. It wasn't long before Michael had made his way into living in the house with Lonnie, just leaving the motorhome out in the driveway. Mm -hmm. He was sweet and gentle. He was generous with her. He was always buying her gifts and flowers. He seemed very smitten. He was thoughtful. He was kind to her. And Lonnie enjoyed being treated like she was really important to him because She'd been along for a while. And of course she does. What girl doesn't want that, you know? <laughs> it's nice to be treated like you matter in somebody's life. Over time, Michael had become a big part of Lonnie's life, and she was feeling fairly trusting of him. But while she worked, he started getting up to no good. Unbeknownst to Lonnie, Michael was repeating a pattern that she didn't yet know was a pattern. After Michael had been at Lonnie's house for about eight months, without her suspecting anything was awry, one day, October 3rd, 2001, the proverbial shit hit the fan. 
Lonnie had gone to the bank. She had an appointment with a loan officer regarding a loan application she was making. She was just trying to figure out the finances for her studio and all of her goings on. Mm -hmm. And since her credit score was lower than she would have expected, she requested to see her credit report. The loan officer pulled up the credit report, and Lonnie was shocked and distraught to discover there were 14 credit cards in her name. Holy. She had no knowledge of any of them. But worse, the credit cards had been charged up, so she had $30,000 of credit card debt in her name. And you know credit card debt is at a ridiculously high percentage rate. Yeah. So to see that had to just make her shit her pants. How does one even spend $30,000 in like eight months? Well, I guess, if, hell. I guess if that's your whole living, that's not that much, you know? Yeah, but it's not like he's using it for rent, you know? Well, I think that thieves don't necessarily only steal what they think they need. That's true. I'm just wondering <laughs> what he's purchasing that she isn't noticing. Where the fuck did you get that Mercedes? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> the fact that all of this had developed since Michael's arrival made it clear to Lonnie that he had to have been the one who had done this. I mean, she wasn't mm-hmm. blinded by this. Yeah. But she had never had a reason to be fearful of Michael. She'd always found him to be a really nice person, a kind and sweet and thoughtful guy. So she headed home to confront him with the situation. Her thought was that he would want to make this right, that he would be embarrassed, Mm -hmm. that he would offer to sell his motor home and repay this debt that he had rung up on these credit cards. So she walked in the house and confronted Michael in the living room. She asked him, what did he know about these 14 credit cards that she knew had to have been him? Mm Mm-hmm. His first impulse was to gaslight her. Didn't she remember? He had asked her for help, or she had agreed for him to get the credit cards in her name. She had totally consented to the cards. Actually, she had opened them all herself. Fourteen cards. She was just forgetting. Okay, maybe one card? (laughs) You're like, oh, whoops, yeah. But fourteen, it's like, those are fourteen trips to the bank to go do this. Oh, no, you can easily fill out applications online. Well, maybe not in 2001. Yeah, you're right. It probably would have been a trip to the bank or at least a form to fill out and mail in. That's dangerous. I didn't know you could do that online. So he was gaslighting her, trying to tell her she had just forgotten they had talked about this. Mm -hmm. Except Lonnie knew she had not. She said she knew he had done this, and she told him very directly, go out to your motorhome, get all of the credit card statements, and we'll start planning on how you can fix this. Mm -hmm. So Michael did go out the front door and out to the motorhome. He was out there for about 10 minutes, and on his way back in, he paused outside on the front steps, and then he walked back in the house, but he wasn't carrying any credit card statements. He walked over to where Lonnie was sitting, and although she thought he was about to sit down and continue the conversation, he reached out and put his hand on her neck, holding tight against her carotid artery and cutting off the blood supply to her brain until she fell unconscious. So she felt herself going dim, Mm -hmm. and as she was going dim, she's like, holy crap, he is... He's, this, he's a monster. This is not the guy I thought you were. Mm-hmm. And as she started to regain consciousness, she immediately remembered she was in some deep jeopardy here. If he would do that, who knew what else he would do? Yeah. And she knew she had to get away from him, who had so quickly changed from this kind, sweet man she had known for 20 years to someone who was clearly a bad guy. Again, Michael tried to gaslight her. His first impulse on every occasion is to say, oh, you're crazy. You just, just deny, deny, deny. Yeah, you must not be feeling well. You must be sick if you just passed out like that. Why did you pass out like that? She tried to get up. She just thought she would get up and walk to the back of the house, away from him. She wasn't trying to run. She just thought, I'll casually just get up and go. Mm-hmm. Maybe he'll just let me go. Anywhere that was away from him. But when he had gone to the motorhome, 
He had actually not returned with the credit card statements, but he had returned with a gun. As he caught her, he smashed the butt of the gun into the top of her head. And I can't imagine the pain of that. But then he followed up by firing the gun twice right next to her head. One bullet went through her left cheek, shattered her jaw, and grazed one of her vertebra. Another grazed the top of her head. She knew she must have been shot in the head, but she didn't feel anything. She said she only heard the explosions and then the ringing in her head afterward. All she had was that. It's like when your ears pop on the airplane and you can't hear really anything at all except for the droning of the engine. Just the fuzziness. Yeah. Yeah. She fell down onto the couch. Lonnie wondered whether she was still alive. She's like, well, I should feel pain if I'm alive. She wasn't really sure. She thought she might be dead. But she could vaguely tell that he was walking through the room a few times. On one of his trips through the room, he took a couch pillow, pushed that down over her head, and then fired his gun two more times. From point-blank range, he somehow managed to miss her with one shot, which hit the wall, but the other shot hit her again in the head. This bullet badly fractured the back of her skull. But Lonnie was still not dead, and Lonnie was not defeated. She decided at that moment she was going to live. But it was clear that she was not going to be able to fight him to survive. Mm -hmm. She was gravely wounded. She also didn't even think she would be able to get up and try to run away, even though where she was laying was only 15 feet from the front door. Yeah, but 15 feet is 15 feet. You have to outrun a gun, and that's almost impossible. Yeah. So she decided that her only option for survival was to outwit and outlast him. She lay, slumped over on the couch where she had fallen, barely breathing, not moving, trying as best she could to focus and stay conscious. She knew in her mind that once it got dark, he was going to try to get rid of her body, and then her chances would be gone. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, he sat at the computer and played video games, just killing time until he could take and dump her body somewhere. What the fuck? How do you do... Can you imagine just... Oh, killed them. Well, let me go ahead and play a game on my iPad or something real fast. Ooh, Tetris! Yeah! Yeah, exactly. God, okay. So there she lay, silent perfectly still, bleeding. For four hours, she lay there. In her mind, she pictured her friends, her family. She thought of all the people she loved and who loved her. She thought about her dad, who had died only the year before. She told herself, I am not going to make my mom go to another funeral. And so she was committed. She was going to survive this. Every so often, Michael would come over to the couch, lift up the pillow, peek at her, see if he could see any signs of her life, any signs of breath or movement, and she fooled him every single time. When she heard a knock at her front door, her mind raced. This could be an opportunity. She knew that he was going to want to keep whoever was out there away from the front door. Mm -hmm. And she was right. She sensed him walking to the door, which was, like I said, about 15 feet away from where she lay on the couch. And he stepped outside to just get rid of whoever was knocking. Knowing that she probably wouldn't have another chance to take any action, she asked herself, where had I left the cordless phone? Because I don't know if you guys remember cordless phones, mm-hmm. but they nobody really has them anymore. They had to sit on a charger or else you would pick them up to make a call and they'd be dead. Mm-hmm. It should have been on the table next to the couch, but it didn't often get put back there. Had she put it back? She couldn't really see up there to just tell if it was there, but she quickly reached up to where the phone should be, and thankfully it was there. What an idiot. He didn't even move the... I mean, thank God he's an idiot, but you know... Well, he thought she was dead. At this point, he, I think he really thought she was dead. <sighs> she grabbed the phone, she called 911, and as soon as the 911 operator picked up, she said, I've been shot in the head, and gave her street address. 
Then she hung up, hoping they would just send help. But a few seconds later, Michael returned inside, and as he was walking in, the phone began ringing. He answered it. It was the 911 operator calling back because they have to make sure the call's not a prank and they have to try and understand what's happening inside the house. So because she hung up the phone, they called back to verify that that was a legit call? Yeah, except Lonnie is still laying there on the couch. She's still just laying there acting dead. Okay, so maybe he's just like mind fucked. What a weird coincidence that 911 is calling. I I don't know, but she put herself back in the same position with the pillow back on her head and Mm -hmm. she just. Okay. Just kept playing dead. Michael tried his hardest to make the 911 operator believe everything was fine here. There was no emergency. They had just had a little fight, but everything was still okay. Mm -hmm. Gaslighting again. She heard him say, Hey, Lonnie, they want to talk to you. Trying to get her to move, to reveal herself, but she didn't fall for it. She continued her silence and her stillness. The dispatcher concluded that since the woman who had originally called was not coming to the phone, this was in fact a real emergency, and in fact this was probably a hostage situation. Mm-hmm. Emergency personnel started arriving not long after this, but Michael knew he was trapped. He wasn't going to just let them come in and help Lonnie. He held them off, denying anything was happening, trying to charm the police negotiator, like the con man he was, for three more hours. I just don't understand where in his mind how this is going to end for him, you know? Yeah. Well, he's a con man. He's been doing this for years, and he thinks he can talk his way out of this because his arrogance tells him, well, everybody in the past has always fallen for my lies. Mm -hmm. These people will eventually just say, okay, he's a nice guy. He's fine. Everything's okay here. So she lay there for seven total hours. She was starting to fear that she wasn't going to be able to hang on much longer because she'd been shot in the head. She didn't know how badly injured she was. Mm -hmm. She didn't know where the bullets had hit her, but she did know she had been hit. She wondered why the police hadn't stormed the house and arrested him. And I'm sure that was because they thought if they did that, he was going to shoot her and kill her. Yeah. She was having an inner debate about whether it would make her safer or if he would kill her if she just spoke up and let him know, I'm not dead. Mm -hmm. So after a while of trying to decide which way would be more likely to help her situation as opposed to hurt it, Mm -hmm. Lonnie sat up halfway on the couch and said to him that she wasn't going to survive and that he needed to just let them come in and help her. Mm -hmm. When she spoke, he's still on the phone with the police And he just paused for a moment, as if he wasn't sure how to take that information. Then he just went on talking as if nothing had happened. But a few minutes later, it seemed like the reality of the situation started to set in. When he finally knew he wasn't going to get out of it, and that an attempted murder charge is better than a murder charge, Mm -hmm. although it shouldn't be, but it is, he said that he was going to take off his shirt, lay down his weapon, and come outside. So he did that. SWAT officers arrested him, and Lonnie was finally reached by emergency personnel seven hours after the first gunshots. Hmm. Lonnie later said she knew she was going to live as soon as she saw the SWAT officers coming into the house. Her angels in black, she called them. As soon as she locked eyes with the SWAT officer, she said she knew that she was going to get through this. She was taken to the hospital, she was treated, she underwent some surgeries, and started the process of healing. And amazingly, she only spent nine days in the hospital. After shot in the head, what, three times? Three gunshot wounds in her head and whatever damage the butt oh, yeah. of the gun caused. And he hit her too. Wow. Because that's, a, that's an injury by itself. 
she did spend some time staying with her mom while she recuperated. She amazingly made a full recovery. She has not had to give up her life, her art, or her independence. As the legal proceedings went forward against Michael Hunter, she discovered he had never been the person that he had presented himself to be. He had been lying to Lonnie since they got back in contact with each other. He was a longtime con man who had been running from arrest in Texas for years. He was still wanted there on fraud charges, and that's why he had been down in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. He had been conning her in every respect. Every single thing he had told her was fabricated in order to manipulate her. He found out she was a successful artist, and he's like, oh, I think I'll go cash in on that. All of the gifts and the flowers and the things that Michael had done for her, all the things he had presented to her, had been paid for by the credit cards he had taken out in her name. Oh, that's horrible. He had spent the better part of a year creating a carefully acted character of a sweet, loving guy who just wanted to be in a relationship. But as soon as Lonnie had discovered the credit card fraud, he knew his facade was now going to be destroyed and he completely imploded in rage and violence. He knew he was already going to be imprisoned in Texas as soon as he got caught. And he knew getting caught would mean a new cascade of charges, so he had panicked and tried to kill her. Michael Hunter was charged with attempted murder, kidnapping, and assault with a deadly weapon. He pled guilty to the charges and agreed to a deal whereas he served a mandatory sentence of 15 years in Oregon for the attack on Lonnie, but... The deal also included a stipulation that immediately after the completion of his mandatory Oregon sentence, he would then be sent back to Texas for a 20-year sentence for the crimes he had been on the run for, which were multiple frauds. He had probably done the same thing to other women Mm -hmm. that had been committed prior to the attempted murder of Lonnie. So he really stacked it up and then fucked himself over real good there. Yeah, he did. So according to plan, Michael Hunter would have completed his Oregon sentence in 2017, and he should now be in Texas prison. But his name's pretty common, so I wasn't really able to confirm his inmate status, but there's no reason that he should not be in prison now. I mean, Unless he died, you know? Unless he died, there's no reason that he should have been let out by now. Mm-hmm. I know that Texas doesn't have mandatory sentences so he might be let out early for good behavior but i can't imagine he would be let out after five years for good behavior yeah lonnie since this all happened has spent time working with other domestic assault survivors and she's also worked with a gun awareness nonprofit called ceasefire which has its goal to remove firearms from the hands of abusers Lonnie Feather was also featured in an episode of I Survived, and at the time she was preparing to do the episode, she found herself really questioning her own motives as to why she was doing this. She ultimately looked inside herself and made this decision. Quote, I do want to reach women who are victims of domestic violence. This happens. There's a way to come through it, and life is worth living. End quote. After her attack, her family wanted to pack up her belongings and find her a new place to live. But in the same vein of self-preservation and self-value from the eyes of an artist looking at the world saying, I can recreate, mm-hmm. Lonnie decided that she was not going to let Michael chase her away from her home. So she stayed in her house, the same place that she had been attacked. She decided, quote, he was not going to take anything more from me, end quote. Lonnie is still working. She is still creating her fantastic and beautiful works of art. And if you're an art lover or a collector, please go visit her website, LonnieFeather.com. L-O-N-N-I-E-F-E-A-T-H-E-R.com. Lonnie talked about how her domestic assault was not the normal 
phases that you see in domestic violence and domestic abuse escalation. He yeah. didn't start with controlling behavior. He didn't start with little things. It it was all sunshine and happiness until his facade got cracked. And then all of a sudden he was rage. And it seems like she was very reasonable about it. Yeah. She said, show me the statements and we'll make a plan together. She didn't say, I'm going to go to law enforcement. I'm going to turn you in. She said, well, how do you fix this then? Exactly. Let's talk about it. That's you know? right. She could have done so much worse. She could have left the house right away and been like, police, get them. Woo, woo, woo. Yeah. And yeah, and in my earlier life, I would have been that person too. Okay, mm-hmm. you screwed up. Let's see how we can make this better. Yeah. But you know what? As jaded as I am now, and I think I want to talk about that in our Hiss and Purr this yep. afternoon. So if you're a Patreon, go ahead and tune in. We don't have to accept these bad behaviors. We don't have to let it go. And if we all just stop letting this stuff go, these people who victimize decent humans who Mm -hmm. really just want to help other people and be nice. Yeah. It's the nice people who get victimized. And that's because we let little things go. And if we stop doing that as a society, stop saying, it's okay. Also, it is important to go to the police to put that on record that this happened, even if you don't necessarily press charges, you know, if you drop the charges, but there's going to be a record there that this did happen, and this is going to come across as a habit if they continue to move on to another victim and do this. Yeah, and and Mm -hmm. obviously that was exactly what happened. If he had not escaped justice in Texas, then she never would have had this happen to her. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was the story of Lonnie Feather, who I just have so much respect for her that she didn't stop being a nice person Mm -hmm. from that. And she didn't stop having this beautiful vision of, I can still create all this gorgeous artwork Mm -hmm. and put it out into the world because art makes our lives better. Good job, Lonnie. Go, Lonnie. And check out her website, guys. I'm not even an art person, and I still looked at that and was like, I wish I could do something like that. Cause it's, I don't know. She almost makes the glass look like watercolor, and it's yeah, really cool. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful. I think that wraps it up for episode 57. Yes. And I think that's it. Join us next week for episode 58, as usual. We love you. We thank you for tuning in. And if you would not mind sharing our podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it, we would really be appreciative. Mm-hmm. Rate and review, of course. We would appreciate that as well. Yes. Until next week. See you later. Bye. Bye, guys. I would think that you would have to... You Just ignore stop it. Stop it. I would... Okay. Okay, there's no ignoring this. Screaming. I went to law school. Let me tell you guys about it. (laughs) This world is so fucking cruel. Yeah. What the hell? Screw you, universe. Screw you. I'm just kidding. Don't come back on me. Don't at me, bro. (laughs) Don't at me. (laughs) I am pretty... Yeah, I know. I'm kind of bitchy, aren't I? You're a badass, mommy. (laughs) You get to... I can't reach you. You're going to have to come around here to get beaten up. (laughs) (laughs) shit <laughs> whatever it takes <laughs> it's two thousand dollars you want to buy it it's only sixteen hundred don't be a- oh. <laughs> okay so i'll pay four hundred you pay the other <laughs> not the person that i thought you were here we go again okay <laughs> i'm just gonna have to leave some of these in dude because <laughs> there's no way
Well, I'm sorry, but I can't pick you up and I can't have Just you so everyone's aware, mom is not beating the cat. She said she locked officers with the first one who came over to her. And that was her lifeline, and she knew that she was going to live. You said she locked officers. (laughs) (laughs) I think you meant eyes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Because locking officers with SWAT is not allowed. They do not want you to do that. It kind of sounds like a euphemism, like knock a boot or something. We locked officers right there and then. All right. Bye. Bye, guys. Puss, do you want to say something since you've been so fucking vocal today? She says, (laughs) We just woke her up and now she's glaring at us.